The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, the Christian life has rightly been described as a journey. Uh, For some of us, the journey is uh, longer than for others. Um, But what is often not emphasized is that our journey as Christians, like every other journey, has a final destination. That is, our journey with Christ is headed somewhere. And it is this final destination, our true home, that whether we realize it or not, we long for. It's the longing beneath every other longing we have in this life. It is the hope beneath every other hope we have in this life. A longing and a hope for our final destination, our true home. And we've all had experiences that stir up this longing and this hope within us. Maybe it's when you're reading your Bible and instead of words just being words on the page, they pop out to you and are alive and bring healing to you through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's this longing stirred within you to hear from the Lord like that all the time, to have intimate relationship with the Lord like that all the time. That's a longing for our final destination, our true home. Or maybe it's when you're having a time of sweet fellowship with your family, friends, or maybe one of your community groups here at Norse Ferry, and the time, you look at the clock, the time is coming for that time to come to an end, and you have a longing within yourself for it not to end, for you to experience that type of fellowship and community on a never-ending basis, forever and ever. That's a longing for our true home. Or maybe it's when we come into this room and we have a band rocking out. It is well with our souls and we just have a longing stirred within us to see that day when our faith will be sight and we long for the Lord. That's a longing for our final destination, our true home. Or maybe it's that very rare day at the office and at home when everything's going as it should be, and we feel like we're using all the gifts that the Lord has given us to their maximum capacity, we feel like we're doing what we were created to do, and we long to feel like that forever and ever, that's a longing for our true home. Or maybe, if you're like me, it's watching a stirring movie, or reading a stirring book, or listening to some stirring music, worship music, and there being something stirred up within you that you can't fully identify and that you can't quench. You can't listen to more music and make it go away or watch another movie and make it go away or read another book and make it go away. It just wells up greater and greater within you. That's a longing for our final destination, our true home. C.S. Lewis famously said, if we have longings that we can't satisfy in this world, the logical implication is that we were made for another world. If we have longings that we can't satisfy in this world, the logical conclusion is we were made for another world, says Lewis. And in fact, we were. We were made for another world. We were made for our final destination, our true home. And Jesus speaks of this other world, our final destination in John 14, at a time when the disciples are getting discouraged because they're starting to realize that Jesus isn't going to be physically with them for much longer. And so Jesus encourages them with a picture of their final destination, their true home. John 14, 2 through 3. Jesus said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So great words. 
The Christian life is a journey. That journey has a final destination, a place that is being prepared for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we journey through this fallen world, we're going to experience pain and we're going to experience despair that causes us to stir the longing that we have for our true home, for our final destination. It's going to cause us to cry out for restoration. And this is the common link that links us and the ancient people of Israel in 586 B.C. When Jerusalem was destroyed and they were sent into exile, we encounter the people of Israel in their journey at a very difficult leg in their journey where everything that they valued had been destroyed. Every physical manifestation of the Lord's presence with them was destroyed. And in this devastating context, they cry out to the Lord for restoration. And as we look at these last two chapters of Lamentations, Lamentations 4 and 5, we're going to see the great truth that the Lord will restore us. The Lord will restore his people. That is, he will bring us to our final destination. He will bring us to our true home that he has prepared for us. We're going to look at this great truth, this great hope, by noting three things. The need for restoration, a prayer for restoration, and a picture of restoration. The need, the prayer, and a picture. We don't have to look very hard in the book of Lamentations, do we, to see the need for restoration. In fact, it's a poem, the entirety of which screams for the need of restoration. And this cry for restoration as the people experience the covenant curses clearly set forth in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, have come upon them to the point where peace had been replaced with panic Military defeat, destruction, separation, happiness had been replaced with famine, severe discipline, futility, desperation. Endurance had been replaced with hunger, wasting disease, pestilence, and death. And hope had been replaced with despair and ultimately exile. The desperate cry continues throughout these last two chapters. The lament continues as we continue through the book of Lamentations. We see this in Lamentations 4.11. Lamentations 4.11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The destruction of Jerusalem was complete. The city that had evidenced the Lord's presence with his people was completely gone. A pile of rubble and smoke was rising from the ashes. Just imagine for a second, that the city that you had lived your whole life in, the city that contained all of your memories, that had everything you valued, everyone that you loved and knew, was destroyed by a hostile people. That now as you looked at the city, everything that you had known, you had to, like Jeremiah say, your ruin is as vast as the sea. There's all that there was. And then imagine further that you were being led from this now pile of rubble to a place that you had never known by this people who had just destroyed everything that you valued, not knowing really what to expect except for a life of serving these people who had just destroyed everything that you loved and separated you from everyone that you loved. This is not a happy existence for the people of Israel in 586 when the book of Lamentations was written. And this reality weighed on them to such an extent that we read in Lamentations 5.15, These words of lament. The joy of our hearts has ceased. 
Our dancing has been turned to mourning. These are heavy words of lament. Just imagine what it means for all joy, which here means something like a deep-seated happiness that affects and permeates the entire being. Imagine what it means for all joy to be squeezed out of the heart of a person. All of it. This is what had happened to the people of Israel, how they felt, and as joy left, despair crept in to the point and infected their hearts to the point where they say in Lamentations 5, 17, this, For our heart has become sick. For these things, our complete destruction, our eyes have grown dim. The image here is of an infection spreading through the hearts of the people. As joy was removed, the disease of despair had started to creep in all throughout their hearts, darkening their hearts, hardening their hearts, and eventually affecting their eyesight. So their eyes had become dim. They could no longer see any beauty, light, or hope. All they could see was pain and despair. The plight and devastating circumstances of the people of Israel in 586, all of it screamed for restoration. Everything had been lost. Everything needed to be restored. And we, like the people of Israel, as we journey through this fallen world and experience pain and experience despair, can, like them, sometimes feel like all joy has been squeezed from our hearts and disease, the disease of despair, has crept in and saturated our hearts and affected our sight so that all we can see is our problems and our pain. In other words, we, like the people of Israel, as we journey through this fallen world, deeply sense the need for restoration. And the encouragement is as we sense this need of restoration to, like the people of Israel, use that need to bring us to our knees and to pray to the Lord for restoration. That's what the people of Israel did. They felt the need for restoration and got on their knees and prayed to the Lord for restoration. We see this prayer in Lamentations 5, 19 through 22. It's the last verses of the book of Lamentations. And we're just going to go verse by verse and look at the people's prayer for restoration. And we'll notice... In the first verse, like our passage last week, the prayer for restoration begins with, but joy was no more for the people. Dancing was a distant memory. The people's hearts were sick. Their eyes had grown dim, but we read in Lamentations 5.19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. The people's prayer for restoration begins with a recognition of his sovereignty. And that recognition allows their eyes to be off of their circumstances and once again on to their God who is Lord over all their circumstances. The destruction of Israel did not affect the reign, the sovereign reign of the Lord. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always reigns. His throne endures to all generations. He reigns over all from eternity past in 586 BC and 2015 and for all eternity future. And the sovereign reign of our God is a life-giving, joy-birthing, hope-creating truth in the midst of our pain and despair as we journey through this fallen world. For if God sovereignly reigns over all things from eternity past, sovereignly reigns over all things right now, and sovereignly reigns over all things for eternity future, then he is the only one who is able to always do what he said he's going to do. 
Remember last week we, decided, we defined faithfulness, God's great faithfulness, as him being able to always do what he said he's going to do in a way that perfectly reflects who he is. And if God is sovereign over all things for all time, he is the only one who is able to do this. He will restore everything lost by the fall as he promised. He will defeat sin, death, and the devil as he promised. And he will, as we read in Romans 8, even use our pain and suffering for our good and for the working out of his good will. No matter what our pain is this morning, no matter what level of despair we're experiencing, the truth is, and get this, all of it is under sovereign, the sovereign rule of our God. And he's using all of it, all good, all bad, both for our good and for the working out of his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Our pain and despair, if we are in Christ, is not random and it's not pointless. Our pain and despair is packed with meaning and is being used by the Lord for our good and his glory. We don't always understand how that works out. There's mystery here, but that is truth. The Lord reigns forever and ever. His throne endures for our, all generations. But for the people of Israel in 586 BC, man, it didn't feel like that. They were completely ruined. The city of Jerusalem, which manifested the Lord's presence with them, was completely destroyed. The promised land that they had been promised for generations and generations was no longer theirs. They were in exile. Despite the fact they knew this theological truth that the Lord is sovereign from eternity past to eternity future, the reality and pain of their circumstances weighed on them to the extent that their prayer continues like this in Lamentations 5.20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? The despair of the people the heaviness of their circumstances had led them to feel forgotten and forsaken by the Lord. Many of us have been there. Many of us, some of us are there right now. Despite the theological truths that we know, I mean, we've, most of us have all been in church long enough to know, uh, is God sovereign? Yes. What does God's sovereignty mean? He's in control over all, all things. But the reality is that the pain in our life, if we put down what we've been calling the fake foyer face and we just get alone together, the experience of some of us right now is that we feel forgotten and forsaken by the Lord because of the pain that we experience as we journey through this fallen world. And the encouragement to you, to us, if we're there this morning, is to, like Israel, keep leaning into the Lord, keep drawing towards the throne of confidence to the throne of grace, that we can find grace and mercy in our time of need. And that's what Israel did. They kept praying to the Lord. Even though they felt forgotten and forsaken by the Lord, they kept praying to the Lord. Why? Because there's no one else they could turn to. There's nowhere else they could do, nowhere else they could go. It reminds me of Peter after Jesus in the Gospels preached a hard teaching uh, that was misunderstood by a lot of people, and people started to leave thinking, okay, this isn't what I signed up for. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter said, man, Jesus, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Where are we going to go? And Israel, like Peter and like us, are encouraged to, even though we feel forsaken and forgotten, to continue praying. And they continued praying, and their prayer continued like this in Lamentations 5, 21. Restore us 
to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Lord, restore and renew us, your people. You're sovereign. Remember us. Restore us. Renew us. And the common definition of restore is to return something or someone to its former condition. The former condition of Israel uh, was heavy on their minds. They had just been exiled. The city of Jerusalem had just been destroyed. And we see the former condition reflected upon like this in Lamentations 4, 1 through 2. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, the people of Israel. Worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earth and pots, the work of a mere potter's hands. The city of Jerusalem was once a glorious city. It was the city that manifested the Lord's presence with his covenant people. It was a glorious place. The people of Israel were once a glorious people. I mean, they were the people of the God of all creation. But the experience of the covenant curses had turned the former glory of Jerusalem into disgrace and the former glory of the people of Israel into shame. Glory had been turned to disgrace and shame. And so the people's prayer of restoration here in Lamentations is, Lord, restore us to our former glory. Restore Jerusalem to its former glory. Restore us, your people, to our former glory. But the story of the Bible speaks of a former and more distant glory than the glory of the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. It speaks of the former glory of Eden and its first inhabitants, Adam and Eve. And this is what our longing for restoration is tied to. Randy Alcorn puts it like this. We are all homesick for Eden. We're nostalgic for what is implanted in our hearts. It is built into us. We long for what the first man and woman once enjoyed, a perfect and beautiful earth with free and untainted relationship with God and each other. This is the restoration that we long for. This is the former glory that we look towards. We look back to Eden, the fully perfect place where there was no sin, where people enjoyed perfect relationship with God and with one another. And in fact, this is what the story of the Bible, all of it is working towards, the restoration of the former glory of Eden and the restoration of perfect and imminent relationship between God and man. All of human history since the fall has been working towards the restoration of what was lost in the fall. Everything, everything is under God's sovereignty and is working all things to the fulfillment of his great and perfect plan of restoration according to his perfect timing. But it doesn't always feel like that. We can objectively know that. But it doesn't always feel like that, does it? As we journey through this fallen world, the pain and the despair that we naturally feel by living in this fallen place weighs on us to such an extent that these things seem so distant from us that they don't seem real, that they don't seem true. They just seem like words on a page. And this was Jeremiah's experience as he closes out his prayer, as he closes out the book of Lamentations. Look at Lamentations 5.22. Lamentations 5.22 Jeremiah closes out his prayer for restoration like this. He's praying for restoration, renewal, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. 
This is a disturbing ending to a prayer for restoration and of a book in our Bibles, isn't it? I mean, how can Jeremiah say such a thing? How can the Lord utterly reject his people? How can the Lord remain exceedingly angry with his people? It just seems contrary to everything that we know. And how can Jeremiah say this? I mean, throughout the whole book, Jeremiah has evidenced a clear knowledge of the sovereignty of the Lord, that he's going to work all things together for good, for the restoration of his creation, of his people. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah understood clearly that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning, and his faithfulness is great. He will always do what he said he's going to do in a way that perfectly reveals who he is, and he said he's going to restore his people. So how can he reject? How can he forsake his people? Well, the truth of the matter is that although he knew those things, the pain and the weight of walking and journeying through this fallen world had weighed and crashed in on him to such an extent that he expressed honest doubt that perhaps the people of the Lord had crossed a point of no return or perhaps the people of the Lord had outsinned God's grace, mercy, love, and faithfulness. And he's not alone, if we're honest, if we can put down the fake foyer face for a while. Sometimes our struggle with sin can be so frustrating. Our repeated failures can be so discouraging. Our outright rebellion against everything we say we believe and love can be so painful that we too have doubts that maybe I've outsinned God's grace. Maybe I've outsinned God's love, mercy, and faithfulness. And when we're in those vulnerable times, our enemy comes and whispers into our ear that it's true. But it's a lie. If we are in Christ, it's a lie. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves this is a lie. If we're in Christ, we cannot outsin his grace. If we're in Christ, we cannot outsin his love, his mercy, or his faithfulness. Just think about that. God knows everything from eternity past to eternity future. So when Christ died on the cross for our sins, those of us who are in Christ, he knew all of our sin, all of our past sin that we've committed before today, all of the sin that we will commit sadly this afternoon, and all of the sin that sadly we will commit for the rest of our life until our last day. He knew it all. That's why we can sing like we did before the sermon, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious Thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. All of our sin, not part of it, was dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing takes a sovereign, all knowing God by surprise. He knew the depth of our sin, and in fact, He knows it better than we do. And in fact, it was the reason he knew the depth of our sin better than we do, that he knew he had to send his son as a perfect sacrifice to die the death that we deserved so that we could have the righteousness that we could never earn. Christ bore the curses we deserved so that we can enjoy the blessings that we do not. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the book of Lamentations doesn't end with the gospel, does it? It ends with an honest expression of doubt that perhaps the people of the Lord were no longer the people of the Lord, that they had crossed the point of no return. But our Bibles, thankfully, don't end with the book of Lamentations, do they? Our Bibles end with what book? Revelation. 
Very good. And it's in that book, Revelation, that we see the ultimate picture of our restoration. We've seen the need. We felt the need for restoration as we've looked through this heavy book of Lamentations. And we've seen that that need, as the book ends, leads the people of the Lord to pray for restoration. But our prayer doesn't have to end with uncertainty like Jeremiah's prayer ends in Lamentations. Our prayer for restoration is grounded in the certainty of the picture of restoration that we see in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to go there as we end our time, as we end our study through the book of Lamentations. We're going to leave the book of Lamentations. And the importance of looking at this picture of restoration is clearly set forth by Paul in Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18, Paul says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here, Paul is comparing two things, our present sufferings as we experience them through this journey, through this fallen world, our present sufferings and our future glory, that is, our ultimate destination, our true home. He's comparing these two things, present sufferings, future glory. And Paul is saying, Man, when I look at these two things, these sufferings aren't even worth comparing to this future glory. And we, like the people of Israel, we don't need a great amount of imagination to see our present sufferings. I mean, they weigh in on us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We don't have to work hard to clearly see that. But we do have to work very hard, every ounce of our imagination, to imagine this future glory that's recorded for us in these two chapters of our Bible, the clearest picture. It's hard to make this more real than our experience of our present sufferings. And so that's why we're looking at this picture. And it's my prayer that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that he will make, as we look at these great truths, that this great picture, this more real to us than our present suffering. So let's go there. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the picture. This is our final destination. This is our true home, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that doesn't mean that this present earth and this present heaven are going to be destroyed and we get new ones. Notice Jesus said, I make all things new, not I make all new things. So this means that this present earth is going to be restored and renewed in such a way that all the scars of sin, all the remnants of pain will be no more. The beauty of creation will no longer be hampered by pollution, disorder, corruption, and the futility to which it was subjected after the fall. That means there will be no more flooding. That's good news for us in this part of the country right now. 
There'll be no more tornadoes. There'll be no more earthquakes. There'll be no more tsunamis. There'll be no more smog. There'll be no more oil spills. There'll be no more landfills. But there will be sunrises more beautiful than we can imagine. There'll be mountain ranges more beautiful than the Grand Tetons. There will be beaches more beautiful than the most beautiful beaches we see in Hawaii or Destin. Again, Randy Alcorn says this, every joy on earth is but an inkling, a whisper of a greater joy. The Grand Canyon, the Alps, the Amazon rainforest, the Serengeti Plain, these are rough sketches of the new earth. One day we may say when we're in the new world, the best parts of the old world were sneak previews, shadows of this one. Like little foretaste, like licking the spoon from mama's beef stew an hour before supper. Love that. It's in this fully restored heaven and earth that we will experience finally the culmination of the covenant of blessings. Remember, as we looked at Leviticus 26 and we outlined the blessings, we saw they culminated in verse 11 and 12 with the Lord's intimate presence with his people. Look at uh, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your people and you shall be your God and you shall be my people. And the people of Israel tasted shadows of that throughout the Old Testament to use Hebrews terminology. But in Revelation 21.3, we see the final and full experience of this promise of covenant blessings as we read, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the picture of our final home, our final destination, a fully restored, a fully renewed heaven and earth with perfect and intimate fellowship with our covenant Lord. Our intimacy with the Lord is described in this passage, in this picture, as him wiping away every tear from our eyes. If we've been a parent, and Bliss is actually in here, uh, this service, so I will probably cry. I will just warn you, we're not in heaven yet. Uh, But you've had this experience, haven't you? When you have your child cry, for Bliss a lot of times, it's when she has a nightmare Uh, and she's crying about some dragon or beast or monster in her closet. Uh, And by the time I get up there, um, she has tears welling down her cheeks, and I have the great privilege as her dad to sit there, lay there with her, hug her, wipe away every tear from her eye, and just whisper in her ear so she can go back to sleep. It's all going to be okay. And she believes me. That is the type of intimacy that we're going to have with our covenant Lord in heaven, where he will wipe away every tear from our eye. But not only will he wipe away all of our tears like a parent or a grandparent does to their kid or grandkid, he'll take away every cause, every reason we have to cry. We'll no longer mourn for those who have passed away because death will be no more. We will no longer have to deal with the scars and the remnant of sin because he's making all things new. We'll no longer have to wait for things to be restored because Jesus says at the end of all time, at the beginning of eternity, it is done. Remember on the cross, as Jesus breathed some of his last breaths, he hung there and he said, it is finished. 
Why? Because on the cross, he secured our redemption. And now, at the end of all of human history, at the beginning of eternity, Jesus stands on his throne and says, it is done. Why? Because the promise of restoration made in Genesis 3 is finally and fully fulfilled. Everything is restored. All things are made new. This is the picture of our final hope, our final destination, our true home. And to the extent we see this, to the extent that sinks into our hearts, we can with Paul say, our present sufferings as we journey through this fallen world are not even worth comparing to this glorious future that awaits us, our final destination, our true home. Let's look a little bit more at the picture, try to dig this deeper in our hearts. Revelation 22, 1 through 4. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Remember Jeremiah's question, as Dave said in worship, as he looked out on the destruction of the people of Israel, who can heal you? And here we see the leaves of the tree of life bringing healings to the nation. Every wound, disease, every faction, strife, war, sickness will be fully healed in the new heaven and new earth. And the presence of this complete healing, complete restoration, complete renewal obviously means that all of the curses flowing from the fall in Genesis 3 will be evaporated. They will be no more. As we read, no longer will there be anything accursed and we see the promise of complete restoration, the promise of the renewal and restoration of all things lost by the fall, finally fulfilled. No longer will there be anything accursed. And finally, again, we see the culmination of the covenant blessings being our experience for all of eternity in Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You see, our greatest joy in the new heaven and new earth will not be the beauty of the new heaven and new earth, although it will be more beautiful than anything we can think or imagine. Our greatest joy in the new heaven and new earth will not be reunited with loved ones or being able to enjoy friendship and fellowship with one another like we've never experienced it because it will no longer be tainted by our brokenness and our sin, although that will be pretty amazing. Our greatest joy in heaven will be the presence and intimacy that we enjoy with our covenant Lord. We'll be in glory to him forever and ever by enjoying him forever. We'll be in glory to him forever and ever by having our deepest longings and our deepest hopes satisfied merely by his presence. Look at Revelation 21.6. Jesus says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. All of our longings, all of our hopes will be finally and perfectly and completely satisfied in our Lord as we enjoy him forever and ever. This is our true home. 
This is the picture of restoration. And to the extent we see that, to the extent we believe that, to the extent that is sweet to us, we can with Paul say our present sufferings as we journey through this fallen world aren't even worth being compared to our final destination, our true home, the hope of complete and full restoration. We're on a journey. Some of our journeys, like I said, are longer in front of us than others, but we're on a journey. And everything about our journey, the pain and despair that we experience as we journey through this life, all screams for restoration. And as we feel this need for restoration, as we feel at times forgotten and forsaken by the Lord like the people of Israel, the encouragement of this passage is to lean in, continue to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you can find mercy and grace in your time of need to pray for restoration. And our prayer isn't uncertain. Our prayer doesn't end with doubt, but our prayer is fueled and grounded by the great picture of restoration our final destination, our place where we're ultimately walking and journeying towards through this Christian life. This great picture ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with a great simple promise and a great simple response. In Revelation 22:20, 20, Jesus, after all these glorious things have been set forth, says this, Surely I am coming soon. The simple message of the scriptures, if you're in Christ this morning, is that Christ has prepared a place for you, a final home, a place where you experience complete restoration, and that one day soon, he will come back for you and bring you to your final destination. That is the reality for all of us who are in Christ. And the encouragement in light of that simple promise is to live lives, to sing songs, to pray prayers like John who responds to this simple promise in Revelation 22 by saying simply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As Christians, we're on a journey. Heaven, a new heaven, a new earth is our destination where we're experiencing intimacy with the Lord forever. He's going to come back and bring us to our true home. So we're to be people who pray and live and sing, Amen, come Lord Jesus. But the message of Revelation 21 and 22, if you read it and you're not united with Christ, you haven't responded to the gospel with faith and repentance, for you this is not a message of hope. This is a message of warning. And the warning is clearly set forth in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This isn't talking about people who struggle with these things. Okay, read Galatians 5, read Romans 7. Paul, the person who looks at our present sufferings and future glory and says it's not even worth to be compared deeply struggled with sin on this side of eternity. What this is talking about is people who don't fight against these things, people who have found their identity in these things, people who find their ultimate hope and joy in life in these things. In other words, people who have not responded to the gospel with repentance and faith and had the righteousness of Christ so applied to them that that's their identity instead of these things. 
If you have not placed your faith in Christ this morning, the invitation is to do so. For instead of harsh words of judgment by Christ towards the end of the book of Revelation, for those who have not placed their faith in him, as one might expect, we get a warm and a gentle invitation. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, Jesus says this, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. If you know in your heart of hearts this morning that you have never responded to the gospel with repentance and faith, the invitation this morning is to come. The invitation to come to Christ is an invitation to become a good person, to have a to-do list of to-dos and to-don'ts. The invitation to come to Christ is an invitation to have the deepest thirst, the deepest longing, your deepest hope satisfied in him and to wait like we who have placed our faith in Christ for a time we will be at our final destination and enjoy restoration for all of eternity with him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.